Well, as you know, the children have gone through 40 years of discipline. And even here at the tail end of the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel, they've experienced the bite of snakes and the end of the spear, and even a plague from the Lord ultimately killing 24,000 people in Israel. By the way, it was brought to my attention this last week that the word plague is used for the punishment in chapter 25. Look at chapter 25 quickly in verse 4. Where it says, the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders and the people, leaders of the people, and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So that right there looks like, looks like it's by the hand of the Lord. And yet if you go down to verse 9, it says that the plague on the sons of Israel was checked, and those who died by the plague were 24,000. And then further down in verse 18, it says the same thing. It refers to the, the plague because of Peor. So the plague is used there, but God tells them to execute the people of Israel. So which is it? Is it execution by the hands of man or is it a plague? And that's the question, Paul, you brought up. It's a good question. Um, And I went back and I looked up the word plague because that's what I do. And the word in the Hebrew literally is pestilence. So we know that in addition to the hands of man, in addition to the execution that God called the people of Israel to do to the leaders, we know that the God, God himself was also plaguing the people. There's more here going on than swords and spears. But either way, whether it's by the agency of man or the hand of the Lord, we see in these hard times the reason for the wilderness. Now, I'm probably going to talk about this quite a bit more on Sunday. This last Sunday, we got into a topic that we kind of stumbled into in our study of the the end of the spear and Phineas' behavior as he speared the two people who were committing a, a horrendous sin right in the sight of Moses and all the people. And what we wandered into there is this concept, this idea of discipline, specifically of church discipline and how churches handle that. And it's raised enough questions that we're probably going to spend some more time on it on Sunday discussing and looking at and considering this whole idea of of church discipline and how we deal with these things. But we need to understand something from the Father's heart. We need to understand that we go through hard times, often as believers, because of discipline. Now, we're, we're very quick. When things are difficult, we're very quick to go to the attacker, aren't we? We tend to want to say, oh, that's of Satan. Oh, that's the enemy. Oh, this is, this is Satan bringing things on. Sometimes, sometimes the hard times are a direct result of the Lord's discipline in our lives. His choice for us. Him taking us into a place where we will be disciplined unto dependency. And that's a phrase you might want to kind of stick in your brain. Disciplined unto dependency. That's the reason for 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Disciplined unto dependency. That the children of Israel will become dependent on God. Now unchurched people like to use the phrase that Christianity is just a crutch. Well, that's right. It is. We need that dependency. We depend on ourselves, we let ourselves down. We depend on other people, other people let us down. There's only one place we can go to depend, and that's to the Lord. He will never let us down. He is never faithless. Always faithful. And so He will discipline us unto dependency. And that's what He's doing with the children of Israel. He's trying to teach them to depend on Him. To depend on His Spirit before they come into the promised land to fully enjoy it. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 7 and 11 says the following. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
And all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. Righteousness, that is being right with God. And so He will discipline us. He will take us into hard times. He will allow even our sin sometimes to catch up with us without intervening so that we will be disciplined unto dependency. We will be right with God. You remember the phrase, we've used it dozens of times, especially since the book of Exodus. It's one thing to get the people out of Egypt. It's another thing to get Egypt out of the people. And that's what we're talking about here. For the Israelites, the story's obvious. For you and I, maybe a little less obvious, it's to get us out of the flesh and into the Spirit. Focus more and more consistently, moment by moment in our lives, on the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. And so remember this, the Lord disciplines those whom He loves. And we see the practical upshot of this in our study tonight. Chapter 26. Chapter 26 is a new census. And it begins, verse 1, Then it came about after the plague that the Lord spoke to Moses and to Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel from twenty years old and upward by their father's households, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel. So Moses and Eleazar the priest spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Take a census of the people from twenty years old and upward as the Lord has commanded Moses. Now, this is the second census that we see in the book of Numbers. The second time. The first time was 40 years prior. We read about it in Numbers chapter 1. Remember, in these 26 chapters, we've covered 40 years. We've launched ahead that far, that fast. The first census was for the purpose of organization and leadership. Organize yourself into your tribes. After that, in chapter 2, God goes on to tell them how they are to camp around the tabernacle. Camping in organization. God is not a God of disorder. He is a God of order. But that first census was also about leadership. Name those who are leaders among the tribes. And you're going to see tonight what happened to all of the leaders of all of the tribes of Israel by this point. For you see, Jeremiah 17 verse 9 tells us the following. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. And the remedy, gang, the remedy for the deceitful heart is found in the preceding verses to Jeremiah 17.9. In verses 7 and 8, listen to this. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream, and will not fear when the heat comes, but it yields, but its leaves will be green. It will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. Now keep this in mind again, for all the hopelessness or hopefulness All the hopefulness of the leaders counted in Numbers chapter 1 end in a bad way. The hopefulness becomes hopelessness. The end result is not pretty. All those leaders, because the heart of man is deceitful. Now the second census that we're coming to tonight is also for two reasons. It's not for leadership or for organization. It's specifically for warfare and for welfare. For warfare and for welfare. God tells the people to count those who are 20 years old and upward who are able to fight. Why? Because they're going to fight. 
They're going to go into the promised land, but they're going to have to fight to keep it. They're going to have to fight their way into it. And, as we've talked about, Israel will be the agency by which God drives out the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and all the ites in the land. He is their divine, they are His divine justice going into the land. So it's about warfare, Israel's divine call and command to go to war. But it's also about welfare, and that's what we're primarily going to consider tonight. Welfare. Not welfare in the way we think of it, like the welfare state, or welfare as in you go and you get welfare checks. Specifically, God is about to divvy up the land. He's about to take care of his people in a very special way. Each one of these tribes have their own portion. They will receive their own inheritance. Let's look at this. Look at verse 7. Skipping down, it tells us that the families of the Reubenites, there were numbered with them 43,730. Verse 14, it tells us the family of the Simeonites, 22,200. Verse 18, the the families of Gad, 40,500. Of the families of Judah, verse 22, 76,500. Verse 25 says the families of Issachar are 64,300. Verse 27, the families of the Zebulonites, according to those who are numbered of them, 60,500. Down to verse 34, we see the families of Manasseh, who are numbered at 52,700. The families of Ephraim, in verse 37, are are numbered at 32,500. Verse 41 tells us of the sons of Benjamin, they were numbered at 45,600. Continuing on down to verse 43, the families of the Shunammites, that is of Dan, 64,400. The families of Asher in verse 47, 53,400. In verse 50, the families of Naphtali, according to their families, those who were numbered of them were 45,400. Now this total population of Israel, if you add it all up, we see the end of it here. Verse 51, these are those who were numbered of the sons of Israel, 601,730. Now if you compare that to Numbers chapter 1, to the census in Numbers chapter 1, the numbers are actually pretty close. There's actually a decrease among the people of Israel by 1,820 people. But consider this. Even though there's a decrease, this is absolutely amazing. Because for 40 years, God has been slowly causing the death of a generation. Remember he said, nobody of that, prior, of that original generation coming out of Egypt, nobody would enter the promised land. Not a single person. And so, one by one, they all have died off. An entire generation of people. Put it this way, and I may be getting ahead of myself, but Moses didn't know anybody, with two small exceptions, didn't know anybody after 40 years that was going into the promised land that he knew originally. Now think about that. Those of you who are 40 years old and upward, that means every single person you know of your generation, dead and gone. And yet, even for all of that loss, even for an entire generation that died in the wilderness, God made the new generation so fruitful that there's roughly the same number of people now going into the promised land as there was 40 years before. That's amazing. It should be half that. But there's still this huge number, 601,730 men over the age of 20 able to fight. Which still keeps our numbers for Israel roughly around 3 million people going into the promised land. Amazing. God has had his hand on Israel. And though there were those who were dying out in the wilderness, there still would be those, his people, who will go into the land. Now, in the numbering of chapter 26, I want to just quickly look at a couple of things. There are three duos that we need to take a look at. 
three combinations of, of two people that are kind of called out. And anytime someone's called out in Scripture, especially more than once, you really ought to pay attention to them. The first two are duds. And the last third, the last duo is dynamic. So you've got a dynamic duo. I'm excited to get to that in just a minute. And you've got the Dudley duos, okay? So we're going to start out with Dudley duo number one, which is Dathan and Abiram. Look at verse 9, chapter 26. It tells us the sons of Eliab, Nemuel, and Dathan, and Abiram. And now the Lord says this. These are the Dathan and Abiram who were called by the congregation who contended against Moses and against Aaron in the company of Korah when they contended against the Lord. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up along with Korah when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men so that they became a warning. Dathan and Abiram. We are reminded of these two. You may remember we just read about this in Numbers chapter 16. Remember the earth opened up and swallowed them down into the pit, closed up and they were gone they were no more and I just want to remind you of this sure principle rebellion is the fastest way to end up in the pit of despair those of you who have seen the Princess Bride you know what I'm talking about the pit of despair if you want to end up in the pit if you want to be in the throes of depression in the pit in your life rebellion is the surest way to do it Rebellion yields a life lived in the pit. Challenge godly authority. Criticize those who lead you. Reject the will of the Lord and you will land up in the pit. End up in the pit. You'll land in the pit. You'll land down in the pit. 250 people died that day and Korah, Dathan, and Abiram went down into the pit questioning and challenging the authority of Moses and Aaron. But here's something amazing that I didn't realize before. Look at verse 11. The sons of Korah, however, did not die. Now that surprised me. I thought they did. I went back and reread chapter 16 just to see what went on there. And it's true. The sons of Korah did not die. David and Abiram went down. And all the men, chapter 16 tells us, all the men who were gathered with them went down into the pit as well. The children did not. So for those of you who were a little upset back in chapter 16 that entire families, including innocent little children, were going into the pit, they didn't. The sons of Korah did not die in the plague. They were not destroyed. Listen, important point. The children were not destroyed because of the fathers. As a matter of fact, and this is absolutely wonderful, they actually went on to a noble place in Israel's history. Let me read something to you. Just close your eyes or, or, or sit back and listen to this. Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for the brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O oh my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar. By the way, little side note, when we were in Israel, we could see Mount Hermon. We didn't get a chance to go all the way over to Mount Hermon. It's up in the north, and it was kind of off to the horizon. But our guide was so excited to get us, get us as close to Hermon as possible just to show us there was snow on the top of Mount Hermon. 
he was just thrilled to death. Look, we've got snow. We actually have snow in Israel. He just went on and on about the snow on Mount Hermon. I thought that was kind of funny. But he goes on here, after talking about the peaks of Hermon, it says, Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime. And His song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As the shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the health of my countenance and my God. That beautiful, wonderful psalm. As the deer pants for the water, we sing that song. And I read it to you for a specific reason. That psalm, along with ten others, was written by the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah. The same Korah who went down into the pit. His sons now grow up and become worship leaders in Israel. As a matter of fact, there's a guy whose name is He-Man. He's actually a master of the universe. He-Man was a son of Korah. And Heman was one of three people that David elevated to the place of the temple musicians, the worship leaders. While their father went into the pit, the sons went up into the heights of worship and praise to the Lord, yielding 11 of the most beautiful psalms that we have in the set of psalms in the Bible. Incredible. Amazing. David, Korah, Abiram, they go down to the pit. But Korah's kids were devoted in worship. And gang, we have the opportunity and the choice to respond to the Father in the same way. We don't have to go down in dysfunction just because our families, because our parents happen to have been dysfunctional people. We're not bound to that. We have a choice like the sons of Korah. And I'll tell you what, the surest way out of the pit, if you happen to have landed in the pit, the surest way out is worship. It's worship. Well, now as far as numbering some of all the tribes here, you can do the math yourself. Some gain, go back to chapter 26, you may already be there. Some gain and some lose. In fact, I've got pluses and minuses just in the margins of my Bible. I can see that the Reubenites lost in their numbers. The Simeonites lost in their numbers. Gad lost numbers overall. Judah gained. Issachar gained. The Zebulonites, they gained. Manasseh gained. Ephraim lost. Benjamin gained. Dan gained, Asher gained, and Naphtali lost. But I want you to note that just two of these, the one who gained the most and the one who gained the least. Manasseh is the tribe that gained the most people. Overall, by comparison, in this count, in this census, back in Numbers chapter 21, they were 20,500 men less than when we see them in Numbers 26. They have increased over 20,000 in this 40 years. So even though they've lost people, in the losing of the generation, the children grew up 20,500 for Manasseh. They gained the most. But the greatest net loss, the greatest net loss of any of these 12 tribes is Simeon. Simeon lost 37,100 men over that 40-year period. 37,100 less. And I, I had to ask the question, you look at this and you wonder, why did Simeon lose so many? Why are they the worst in, in terms of net loss? More than anybody else, and you don't have to go far to find the answer to this. In fact, a lot of the rabbis, what they tend to teach, they point to Numbers chapter 25, which we looked at on Sunday. Remember the spear of Phineas. 
Do you remember the name of the two people, the Israelite and then the, the Moabite woman? Do you remember their names? The woman's name was what? Cosby. That one's easy to remember. Cosby, Bill's daughter. She was involved with this. But then the Israelite, his name was Zimri. Zimri was of the tribe of Simeon. And what a lot of the rabbis have taught over the centuries about this is that the tribe of Simeon was the most caught up in this failure in chapter 25. They were the ones who were more than any other tribe going after the daughters of Moab. They were the ones going after the daughters of Midian. And they were the ones who had the greatest loss. 37,100 people. We know that 24,000 people died in this plague. And again, the rabbis would teach most of those, or a large percentage, were of Simeon's. And listen... This rebellion not only cost them numbers, it cost them their inheritance. It cost them their inheritance. What do you mean? Read on. Look at verse 52 of chapter 26. (coughs) See how fast we're moving tonight? Verse 52. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Among these the land shall be divided for an inheritance according to the number of names. To the larger group, (coughs) excuse me, to the larger group you shall increase their inheritance. And to the smaller group you shall diminish their inheritance. Each shall be given their inheritance according to those who are numbered of them. In other words, Manasseh gaining 20,500, it was a blessing to them. That means more land, bigger inheritance. But to Simeon, who are down 37,000, they lost land, less inheritance. There's a biblical principle here that Jesus talks about. In fact, he told a couple of parables that are practically played out in these verses here. The first parable is the parable of the talent. Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. Verse 29 tells us the following. Jesus says, For to everyone who has, more shall be given. This always threw me for a loop, especially as a young Christian. To everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he has shall be taken away. And the spiritual principle here is huge, gang. Those who are increasing for the Lord and in the Lord, those who are growing as the tribe of Manasseh was, will will receive a larger inheritance. But those who are diminishing or decreasing, less effective, they receive a smaller inheritance. And again, spiritually speaking, you receive more if you've done well with what God has entrusted to you. However, you will lose more if you have not handled well what He has given to you. And I'm not talking about finances. I'm not talking about material things. I'm talking literally about the gifts that He gives us. The abilities, the opportunities. The more we avail ourselves of them and use them, guess what? The more He's going to call you out to more ministry. And yet the more we back away, the more we sit you know, back in the back and, and try to be a quiet person who's not involved, the more we pull back from ministry, the less we receive. Oh, wait a minute, it sounds like you're talking about rewards. Like works-based rewards. I am. I am absolutely. And I absolutely believe in this. The question of rewards was raised for me again this week. I was sent an email and someone was asking, do you really believe that there are specific rewards given to people in heaven? And I do. Well, why is that? Well, because the Bible says there are. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, stop right there. We must all be appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Sounds like judgment day, doesn't it? Well, I thought I was judged at the cross. I thought Jesus took all my sins at the cross. So what? You mean I still have to go before the judgment seat? You Bible students know what this is. The judgment seat is the Bema seat. 
The Bema seat. A seat that literally was a raised platform. It's what the judges would sit on in the Greek games, the Olympic games, to judge the runners. And as the runners came across the tape, broke the tape across the finish line, and came up to receive their reward, they would stand on the Bema seat. That's the judgment seat. The place of the giving of rewards. Not of judging whether or not you get to go to heaven. Because you were graced at the cross. But there is indication, Paul says here, of rewards. He says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, if you understand the grace of God and you understand that your salvation is not by a stitch of work that you can do and you come across this verse, then you have to accept that there are rewards that have nothing to do with your salvation. That there are going to be people saved, standing in heaven, who didn't do hardly anything, but at the last second just cried out, I believe in Jesus, and boom, the rapture happens, and they just barely go. In fact, Paul says, as through, as though one escaping the fire. There are going to be people landing in heaven with their shorts on fire. Happy just to be there, barely making it in. And there are going to be others. And I would bet, if I was a betting man, that most of you here tonight would be among the others. Because there's something about faithfulness. And there's something about consistency with the Lord and being in His Word that that impacts the way we live our lives. But there will be others who will arrive in heaven as well and will receive rewards that our friend with the hot pants will not receive. Because we will receive rewards... We're going to be recompensed according to what we have done. Jesus said, Revelation 22:12, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Now, if my salvation is not based on what I've done, then there must be something else going on here. Rewards. And again, the larger the tribe, the larger the inheritance. The increase of the tribes had everything to do, though, with faith. It was the growing of faith and dependency on the Lord. It wasn't the faithful tribes who lost out in all these various rebellions that we read about. It was the faithless tribes who rebelled. And so they lost out. More on this in just a minute. The Numbers 26 verse 55 goes on. It says, The land shall be divided by lot. They shall receive their inheritance according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. Selection, or according to the selection by lot, their inheritance shall be divided between the larger and the smaller groups. Now the size, the size of the land inheritance depends on the size of the tribe. In other words, the bigger the tribe, the bigger the inheritance. However, the location of the land in Israel was decided by casting lots. And there's another spiritual principle involved here as well. You might say, well, wait, casting lots, that's the luck of the draw, right? No, I would say it's the sovereignty of God. They cast lots, but it was God's sovereign call as to who ended up where. The lots was just a way of showing them where they would be. The second parable here that Jesus tells is the parable of the 11th hour workers. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. I love this parable because it's that story Jesus tells about the, the landowner, the vineyard owner, who hires some guys in the morning to work the vineyard. And they work all day long. About midway through the day, he hires some more people. And they work the rest of the day. And then in the 11th hour, at the very end of the day, he hires another group of people. So he's got three different groups hired at different times, and they all come up to receive their paycheck at the end of the day, and he pays them all the exact same thing. Now think about that. The guys who have been working all day long are going, hang on, that's not fair. 
I mean, how would you feel? That's just not fair. I remember when I was just started out as a youth pastor. I mean, literally like two weeks into it. And we were going on this mission trip to Mexico. It had been set up before I got there. And I was meeting with the kids. And there was someone who came up to me and said, I really want to go on the trip. And I never signed up. And I didn't do all the stuff, you know, three months ago. But can I still go? And I said, sure. And I had no idea what I was doing. I said, yeah, sure. Sign up. Why not? Come on. And the rest of the youth group was furious. They had gone on service projects. They had raised their money. They had spent time and energy and effort on this. And here, like within a week before we leave, comes this other guy, and I just let him go on the trip. And I thank the Lord for His insight and the Holy Spirit for happening to be there with me that day because I went right to this parable. And it's perfect. No, it's not fair that people would be working all day and get paid the same thing as the person who comes along at the end. But listen to what Jesus says, Matthew twenty fifteen. He says, Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Hey, I'm the landowner. This is my land. Israel is my land. And I'm going to divvy it up exactly how I want. And if you got a problem with that, hey, tough, it's my land. I don't have to give any of it. And you know that's a great thing for us to recognize as believers today? Hey, it's all God's stuff. As Jeff D'Angelo always says, hey, it's God's money, not mine. It's not my money. It's not my stuff. What I have just happens to be what God blessed me with. What you have just happens to be what God blessed you with. And if we look at each other and compare what we have with each other, then you know who we're really arguing with? God. Because He's the one who gave it to us. I'll tell you what, the home I live in is not because of my brilliance in real estate. It has absolutely nothing to do with it. It just happens to be that's where God wants us. That's where I get to live. Now, two years from now, I may not be living there anymore. (laughs) But it's up to the Lord. He gives and He blesses and it's His. He says, is your eye envious because I am generous. And questioning the generosity of God gain is nothing short of covetousness. That's what it is. When I covet, I question God. I question His generosity. So be happy with what you've got. Now, the Lord goes on and He calls us to the second Dudley duo in our, uh, to our attention. The first one, you know, David and Abiram. Now we get to the second one. We've heard about these guys before. Look at verse 57. So these were numbered of the Levites according to their families of Gershon, the family of the Gershonites, and of Kohath, the family of the Kohathites, and of Merari, the family of the Merarites. These are the families of Levi. The families of the Libnites, and the families of the Hebronites, and the families of the Malites, and the family of the Mushites, like to be in the Mushite family, and the family of the Korahites, and Kohath became the father of Amram. And Amram, his wife, was Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt, and she bore to Amram, Aaron, and Moses, and their sister Miriam. Remember the three of them. Now verse 60, to Aaron were born Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And now the Lord chooses to remind us the third time in Scripture so far, verse 61, but Nadab and Abihu, when they offered strange fire, died before the Lord. Why are you mentioning this again, Lord? We know this. Nadab and Abihu. I mean, that was not one that was easy to miss. The whole strange fire incident. But they're the second deadly duo. And they're pulled out again in this chapter for us to consider, think about. Remember Dathan and Abiram. Don't go where they went. You'll end up in the pit. The pit of rebellion. And now Nadab and Abihu, who offered strange fire and died for it, don't follow their position as well. What's the problem with Nadab and Abihu? Bottom line, gang, we read about this story in Leviticus chapter 10. There's a right way and there is a wrong way to approach the Lord. The wrong way. 
The wrong way is to light your own fire in your own fire pan. The right way, the only fire that God desires is the fire that comes from the altar. The altar. What altar? The altar, gang, a burnt offering, is always a picture in Scripture of the cross. The only way to go to the Father is through the ministry and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Not through my own efforts and not through my own attempts and not through my own program or way of doing things. Listen, you will burn out in Christian service. You will get fried in ministry if your motivation is anything except what Jesus Christ has done for you. If I am involved, Mark and Wendy, Wendy specifically I believe is involved in children's ministry. If Wendy's involved in children's ministry because look at what the Lord has done for her in her life. And she's so blessed by the Lord that she wants to turn around and bless the children that she is going to flourish and enjoy it and it will not be a burden for her. But if she's doing it because she thinks that people are going to you know, give her a little more recognition for it. If she's doing it because there's some other ulterior motive, she's going to burn out. She'll tire of it. It'll get old really fast. Gang, that's strange fire. It's my motivation outside of Christ for doing anything I do in ministry. And I'll tell you something. I've been in full-time, pastoral, paid position, whatever you want to call it, ministry for 18 years now. And the reason I'm still in full-time ministry to this day is because I still remember that Jesus paid it all. And I don't say that to pat myself on the back, gang. It is not my abilities that keep me into ministry. It's not the things that I can do. It's not the things even that I've learned. It's not even a command of the scriptures that keeps me going in ministry. I'll tell you what, ministry gets hard. And I would not last in it. If not for the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross, every time something hard comes down in my life, all I have to do is look at the cross. And man, I can turn around and say... Rail on me all you want. Take your best shot. Jesus Christ, save me. And I won't burn out. So if you ever worry about that, I plan on being around here for a while. Okay? Strong fire. Strong fire comes from the altar. Strong fire. Strange fire comes from you looking for recognition, hungering for authority or control, desiring the applause of men, or positioning myself for center stage. That's strange fire, and that will burn you out. That will leave you fried. So the Lord repeats this again that we might know it well. Nadab and Abihu, remember them. They burned out. Dathan and Abiram, remember them. They fell into the pit. And consider this as well, that every single named man in the original census burned out, was fried. They're all dead and gone. Every single one. Look at verse 62. Those who were numbered of them were 23,000, talking about the Levites. Every male from a month old and upward, for they were not numbered among the sons of Israel, since no inheritance was given to them among the sons of Israel. You remember what the inheritance of the Levites is? Remember what their inheritance was? The Lord. The Lord's their inheritance. So they're not given specific land inheritance. They're, They're given cities throughout Israel. But they don't have their own land inheritance. Their inheritance is the Lord. But reading on it says... These are those who were numbered by Moses and Eleazar the priest, who numbered the sons of Israel in the plains of Moab by Jordan at Jericho. But among these there was not a man of those who was numbered by Moses and Aaron the priest, who numbered the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, They shall surely die in the wilderness, and not a man was left of them except... And here's our dynamic duo. You know him. Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, 
and Joshua the son of Nun. Why these two? Why are they, out of the original 603,550 men, rewarded with passports to the promised land? The answer is simple, faith. They had faith. It's that simple. They just had faith. The people said to Jesus in John 6.28, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And he answered them and said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Faith. 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 It's the victory. Now we're going to see great things out of both these two men, especially Joshua. Once we finish the Torah, which should take us just a few more weeks to do. Now, the census is taken, and a question arises, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 27. We're going to move through chapter 27 quickly here. The daughters of Zelophehad, great name, Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, came near. And these are the names of his daughters. You think Zelophehad is good. Listen to this. Mala, Noah, Hogla. Hogla. How would you like to be a girl with the name Hogla? Poor thing. And Milka, not a whole lot better. And Tarzan. Uh, Terza, sorry. And they stood before Moses and before Eliezer the priest and before the leaders and all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Okay, so these... These five daughters, daughters of Zelophehad, they come up to the tent of meeting and they say, Our father died in the wilderness, verse 3. Yet he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah. But he died in his own sin and he had no sons. Now watch this. Why should our name or the name of our father be withdrawn from among his family because he had no sons? Give us a possession according or among our father's brothers. In other words, they're saying, We've got nothing. There are no brothers, no sons among us, no one to take care of us. We are without inheritance because our father died and there are no brothers in the family. What do we do? Can we have an inheritance too? So what does Moses do? He brought their case before the Lord. I like that about Moses. He's been walking close with the father for some 80 years now. And what does he do? Does he assume to have the answer? No, he still goes to the Lord. There's only one time Moses made an assumption. He assumed the Lord was angry when the Lord was not, and because of that he does not enter the promised land. One time Moses made that mistake. But here he is, 80 years old, they come with a question, and Moses brought their case before the Lord. That's wisdom. He brought their case before the Lord. How often do you go first to the Lord? How often do you find yourself trying to work everything out, and then a week or two down the line going, you know, I should pray about this. There's a thought. How often do you find yourself so stressed out and so boxed in and suddenly you go, huh, I wonder if prayer would help. And Moses, he goes straight to the Lord first. Gang, I believe this is a key to our faith development. It is so simple, but it's so overlooked and unpracticed in the church today. James 5.13, James said, is anyone among you suffering? Pray. Is anyone cheerful? Praise. It's that simple. You having a struggle? Go to the Lord. Sunday morning, I, and I shared with, this, with you a few of you before we began tonight, that we offer prayer for those who are under attack. Now i got to tell you, it blew me away. Because I was sitting up here during communion and just thinking about things, and, and, and I just had a sense, you know, there, there's some people here who need to be prayed for who really feel like they're under attack. I was probably numero uno. 
And I thought, Lord, if I'm feeling under attack, then I'm sure there are others here who are. And I figured five, maybe ten people, if it, you know, if there were that many, would stand up. And so I got up, and if you were here Sunday morning, you know what happened. I said, hey, if you feel like you've been under attack over the last week or two, stand up. And like almost everybody... Like three-fourths of the place, somebody gasped. I just, it blew me away that that many people in this fellowship felt like they were being shot at by Satan. And so we prayed. Now the outside world would look at that and go, big deal. Who cares? Great, you had a bunch of people stand up and you prayed for them. I'm sure they felt better for a few minutes, but their problems were waiting for them right outside the door. Not so in God's economy. Not so. We take our things to the Lord. We take our attacks to the Lord. And I guarantee that everybody who walked out of that door Sunday morning had a protection they did not have when they walked in the door. The protection and the power of prayer. Calling down God's angels. Calling His Spirit. Frightening away the demons. That's why prayer is so important. That we stay in tune with the Father. That we go to Him constantly. That we take it to Him first. Just like Moses does. The daughters are worried. They have no inheritance. Things are not looking good. They're going to go into the promised land and have nothing. They go to Moses. What should we do? And Moses Moses goes directly to the Father. What should we do? Listen to what the Lord says. And I love this. Verse 6. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in their statements. You shall surely give them a hereditary possession among their father's brothers, and you shall transfer the inheritance of their father to them. Further, you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughters. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then give the inheritance to his father's brothers. If he has no, and if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his nearest relative in his own family, and he shall possess it, and it shall be a statutory ordinance to the sons of Israel just as the Lord commanded Moses now gang listen this was a male dominated world at the time Israel was coming into the promised land as a matter of fact historically no other group up to this time ever had given any right to women no group this was shocking this was stunning this was absolutely unheard of women were cattle they were possessions used and abused Without exception in the nations of the world at this time, and Israel was the first nation that began to recognize, check this out, the rights of women. And the daughters of Elopahab, they weren't a bunch of feminazis. They were just, sorry, they, they, they were just wanting some care, some protection. And the Lord says they are right. And he sets the standard of protection and care for all the daughters of Israel. And this again was revolutionary. Gang, it wasn't Susan B. Anthony or Gloria Steinem that was the greatest liberator of women in history. It was the Lord God and especially his son Jesus Christ. He's the one who liberated women in this world. And you ladies among us, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Jesus broke the curse. The curse that was on Eve and Adam all the way back in the garden, Genesis chapter 3. The curse was, you're gonna, your desire is going to be for your husband from here on out. You are now under your husband, whereas before you were beside him, Eve, you're under him now. But what happened? At the cross, the curse was broken. And Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither male nor female. You're all one now. In Christ Jesus, you're one. And by the way, culturally speaking... Everywhere in the world the gospel has gone, the value and standard of women in that society has been elevated. 
You can study it down. Check it out. Everywhere where the gospel has been preached, where the gospel has been taken in the world, women in that society end up better off because of it. Now I only tell you that because there are those in the world who will say that Christianity is a patriarchal system that is demeaning to women, that cuts them down, and doesn't consider who they are and gives them no value. And it is completely contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, who elevates women to the same place as men, both of us together, one in Christ Jesus. Now, one question. You've got to think about this. These daughters come along. They've got a little problem. Bring it to Moses. Moses brings it to the Lord. And God goes, Hey, what do you know? They're right. Had God not thought about this up to that point? Because this is, this is an additional law. We don't find this back in the Levitical law. Is it that God just missed it? Oops. Oh, yeah. What about that? What if there is a family that doesn't have any sons? What do we do about that one? Well, okay, give them some land. Gang, God was not responding on the fly. But I believe this, and it's an important principle, I believe that some things are left out of Scripture so that we might go to the Father for the answer. Think about this. There are things you don't understand. You search the Scriptures and you're like, why can't I find an answer for this? And God's saying, how about asking me? How about bringing it right here? Now listen to me. I love the Word. You know this. And I am very pro the Word. But the reality is the Trinity is not God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. Is it? It's God the Holy Spirit. And we've talked about how there are churches that will teach the Bible voraciously, into the Bible, into the Word, talking about the Word, always in the Word, fantastic, wonderful. But if you're devoid of the Spirit, the Word dries up and the pages get crackled and they don't really work. But the Holy Spirit, Jesus told us, will bring to remembrance all these things that I have taught you. The Holy Spirit is that living water that comes rushing in. The Holy Spirit, in a place where the Bible is taught, get out of the way. Make room. There's power in that. So in this case, I think what God was waiting for was for the people of Israel to come and see Him for further details. I'm going to give you the law, but I'm not going to give you all the law. I'm going to give you most of it, but things are going to come up. What do you do when those things come up? Go to the Father. Go to the Father. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, he says, This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. On their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And gang, there is a day coming when we will not have the Scriptures, we will not need the Scriptures. In fact, the Bible says they will not ask, tell one another, know the Lord, because everyone's going to know Him. Why? Because it will all be written here. It will all be internalized. It will all be specifically and directly taught by the Spirit. I really wonder about this. Will we even have our Bibles anymore in the Millennial Kingdom? I'm not sure why we need it. Got a question? Go see Jesus. Got a curiosity? Ask the Lord. He's right there. Cool. Anyway. Going on, remember that God is spirit, John 4, 24, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, as we approach the end of the chapter, two more things happen. Read on. Verse 12 tells us, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go up to this mountain of Avarim and see the land which I have given to the sons of Israel. When you have seen it, you too will be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to treat me as holy before the eyes at the water 
And these are the waters of Meribah, of Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin. Now listen, Mount Avarim, what, what's that? And this is the first time we've seen Mount Avarim in the scripture so far. Let me explain it just so you know as it comes up in scripture. It's a 50 mile long mountain range. In Jordan today, Mount Abarim. It's not just one mountain, it's a range of mountains. And the highest peak in those mountains is another mountain called Mount Nebo or Mount Pisgah. So in the scriptures, there's Mount Abarim, Mount Nebo, and Mount Pisgah. And they're all three the same mountain, the mountain that Moses went up and saw the promised land from and died on. Okay, So it's not contradictory in the scriptures, it's just three of the same place, just all named. One is the mountain range, Abarim, and the Nebo and Pisgah, the, t- the tallest peak in that mountain range. But what's this all about? God's telling Moses, go up to this mountain and see the land. Well, you know that God must be preparing Moses for death. He says he is. You're going to see the land, and after the fact, you're going to die. Now, thankfully, Moses is going to hang out with us all the way through the rest of Numbers and through Deuteronomy. So we haven't lost him quite yet. But this is the point where before his death, God is saying, I want to show you the land. And I want to show you something. Flip over to Deuteronomy, very end of the book, chapter 34. Deuteronomy 34. Because even in the judgment of God, even as he meets out justice, which Moses deserved, Moses sinned under the law, and Paul says if you live by the law, you will die by the law. The law can only bring death, which is why I'm so thankful that we're under grace. But even under law, look at the grace of God for Moses. Deuteronomy 34, verse 1. Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, watch this, Gilead as far as Dan, and all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, and the Negev, and the plain in the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar, And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. What's going on here? Listen, from the place, any place on the top of Mount Pisgah, you cannot see all of the promised lands. You can't see it. You can see aspects of it. But there's nowhere up on that mountain range in Jordan where you can look down and literally see all of Israel panned out, laid out before you. So what's going on here? God is giving Moses, before he dies, supernatural vision. He's letting him see what he could not see otherwise. He's giving him a glimpse, a taste, not only of just, oh, there's a promised land down there somewhere in that fog. No, he gets to see the whole thing. He sees where every tribe is going to be. He can see the waves crashing on the shores of the Mediterranean. He can see Mount Hermon in the north. He can see the Negev down in the south. The whole thing supernaturally, and that's God's grace. God's grace saying you brought the people this far yes Moses you sinned and yes because of your sin you will not enter the promised land you're going to die however man I want you to see it I want you to see it at least so you can know the culmination of this journey the success in what you've done I want you to see it Moses and you and I know by the way that Moses got to see the promised land from another mountain as well probably Mount Hermon but we know it as the Mount of Transfiguration where he appeared with Elijah alongside Moses when, when Jesus no, Moses, alongside Jesus when, uh, when Jesus was transfigured and he was up on the mountain with him actually in the promised land but John 1.17 a great verse tells us the law was given through Moses and I remind you the law kills it even killed Moses himself however grace and truth 
are realized through Jesus Christ. Well, verse uh, 15 tells us, Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, May the Lord of the God of the spirits of all flesh appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them and who will lead them out and bring them in so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. That's an interesting phrase. The same phrase was used to describe Jesus' concern for the people in Matthew 9.36 and Mark 6.34. Same phrase. Jesus looked at the people and said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They need shepherding. And so in this case, Moses saw that. Remember, this is Moses speaking to the Lord. He knows he's going to die. He's not complaining about it. He's not whining about it. He's saying, oh Lord, please, I've got to take the people in. I mean, they've learned to rely on me. No, all Moses is concerned about here is who's going to lead the people in. I want to make sure they get there. And so he says, Lord, appoint a man over the congregation. One who will go out and come in. So that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. Verse 18 so the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun. So we know Joshua was a Catholic. A man, a man in whom is the Spirit. And lay your hand on him, and have him stand before Eliezer the priest and before all the congregation, and commission him in their sight. Remember, Eliezer is now the priest. Aaron has died. Eliezer, his son, has now taken over. He's the high priest. Commission him in their sight. You shall put some of your authority on him, in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. Moreover, he shall stand before Eliezer the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his command they shall go out, and at his command they shall come in. Both he and the sons of Israel with him, even all the congregation. Moses did just as the Lord commanded him, and he took Joshua and set him before Eliezer the priest, and before all the congregation. And then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. This is Joshua's great commission. And we're going to see more of this and more of how Joshua led the people as we get to the book of Joshua and how he's commissioned to do so. But, but listen and, and note this last thing here. It's not the great commission of Phineas. Now it could have been. God was pleased with Phineas. Phineas obviously had a heart of a leader. Phineas obviously was not concerned about what people thought of him, even to the point of grabbing that spear, as we saw on Sunday, racing into the tent and spearing Zimri and Cosby, and taking care of the sin and checking the plague. Phineas was a great person. His heart was full of passion. Again, his spear wet with blood, and God was pleased with that passion and with that desire. The rabbis say that Phineas was not chosen because he was a zealot and a radical, and the Lord desired to have a common man lead his people. Phineas was maybe a little too hot-headed. I don't know. But it's not Caleb either. Caleb actually does more talking back when they come back, the, the, the 12 spies, than Joshua does. It's not Caleb. You remember what Caleb's name means? Dogs. That's right. Literally a tack dog. He was a fighter, by the way, to his dying day. I love that verse, Judges 1.20. They gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had promised. He's probably 85 years old when he's living in Hebron. And it says he drove out from there the three sons of Anak, who were giants. Remember we talked about Caleb? Send me to Hebron. I want to live there in the region of the giants. I want to be in charge of nailing those guys. 85 years old and he's chasing giants. This guy's awesome. But he's not chosen. Not Phineas. Not Caleb. The man of God's choosing is just Joshua. Joshua. Like Phineas, he's certainly passionate for the Lord. 
Joshua 24, 15, he says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He tells the people, you make a choice, but we've made our choice. Whatever your choice is, we will serve the Lord. He's got a passion for God. Like Phineas. Like Caleb, he's certainly a warrior. Certainly incredibly faithful. Like our good old dog Caleb. But there's something else about Joshua here. Exodus 24.13 tells us that Moses arose with Joshua his servant. Joshua his servant. Or Joshua his minister. That's what Joshua is called. In fact, that's when Joshua first shows up. We see this, this man Joshua who's a second to Moses. He's a steward to Moses. The word servant in Exodus 24.13 is sheriff. Sheriff. And it literally means a menial attendant. It's a water boy. It's the guy who's there to pick up the towels after the game. He's just kind of there to, to follow Moses around and take care of little extra things. It's a menial position. The servant. But listen, Paul says the following. He says in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, listen to this, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And that's why Joshua was chosen. Phineas, I'm sure he was faithful. Caleb, absolutely faithful. But the real faithful one of the three. The one that God chose, the steward was Joshua. And this is a key characteristic and it brings us back to things we've already talked about tonight. That perspective of faithfulness. Jesus said in Luke 12.42, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward, whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. The faithful steward. Gang, the faithful steward plugs away day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out. You will always find the faithful steward plugging away for the Lord. You might not even notice him most of the time, but he's always there. You might not be aware because he's not real flashy, but he's always serving. The faithful steward. No flashy spears like Phineas. No passionate portrayals like Caleb. Just faithfulness. And God is calling for faithfulness among his people. And the question is, are we listening? Are we listening? You and I, gang, we're going to experience the wilderness. We're going to go through tough times. We're going to have dry seasons. We will also be disciplined by a loving Father. But the question I leave you with tonight is the question of Jesus where he says in Luke 18 verse 8, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Let's pray. God, Father, I pray for one thing tonight, that you would make us faithful. Father, we concern ourselves not with crowns, with gems, with jewels, with gold and silver and precious things. We concern ourselves with being called faithful. Father, forgive us of our arrogance and our pride which so often gets in the way and allow us just to be faithful before you. God, I am so blessed by my brothers and sisters here tonight. So blessed by those who choose, again, week in and week out, even just to be here. To have your word open. To be hungering after you. And thirsting after you. And I pray that you will bless us with increasing amounts of faithfulness in our lives. That we might be found faithful when you come. The steward who is blessed by the Father. In Jesus name. 
Amen.